Hi guys, and welcome back to the Club Divin Roadmap Series. This is episode nine, and we have a very interesting guest speaker today for our deep dive into how NFTs can influence wine investments. Today, we are joined by Master of Wine, Philip Harden, and Divin's own Badad Shasavari. In this episode, Philip's going to fill us in on his journey into wine and give us some insight into the community of Masters of Wine. We're going to talk about the effects of technology on the wine industry and some of the fundamental changes that have occurred over the years. And then we'll dig into the topic of wine as an investment. Some of the questions that we're going to be answering today are, what should you consider if you're coming into wine investing from other areas? Is fine wine becoming less and less accessible? What are the benefits and risks of NFTs for the wine industry? Stick around to find out. Over to you, Badad and Philip. A huge thanks to you, Philip, for joining us and taking the time out. And also a note of appreciation for your support of the club and what we're trying to do. It's been fantastic having you as one of our, one of our experts and founding members. Maybe just by way of introduction, you can, you can introduce yourself through a little bit of your, your journey into the wine world, because it's not a stereotypical one. So how did you end up with with two little letters, two little but important and meaningful letters after your name? With a lot, a lot of blood, sweat, and toil and angst. Uh, um, story, indeed. Yes. Uh, look, it's great to be here. And I think Flip Devan's really interesting. It's got you know, some great ideas and it's at the forefront of things that are changing and moving in the wine world. My journey was, I used to work in finance. I stopped my career and I just, I loved food and wine and collected a bit of wine. And there's always a history in the city in London of people collecting wines. It was all around you. And I was just always fascinated by it started buying and selling wine and you know, trading wine, investing in wine. Then I started studying about it, went to learn more and then got on the path to doing the Master of Wine. And that was a really fantastic and interesting journey. The people you met, the intensity of the courts, the sort of the standards of the Institute, the high bar they set makes it, made it really intense, but it was fascinating. So I really enjoyed that. So bringing that sort of finance background and wine naturally led me to the investing side of wine. So that's really, I suppose, what I feel comfortable in or know most about. And was it a welcoming community? Because I, I think, you know, the master of wine has a certain reputation for being brutally difficult, but of course we've all seen, seen some, and while that's a different certification, you did get the sense of competition, but camaraderie there. What is the MW community like, especially for a uh, a gentleman like yourself who came in kind of as more of a consumer of their services and then trying to become, I'm, I'm sure that wasn't necessarily the easiest way to, to enter. Well, I would just say it's a body of, dare I say, quite eccentric people. There's a lot of characters in there. The Institute certainly used to be known as a lot more brutal because the office was only very small. And literally, I think in the early days, the papers, there was no study support or anything. You just went to the exam, got the paper, and that was it. But then you, you were judged as such. But the Institute sort of grow. It's very welcoming. And it's, it's the intensity and difficulty of passing that brings all the students together and makes them bond because you need each other. You need to help each other. You need, you're each other's resource. Like when, you know, you were tasting probably three times a week and people were organizing those Sunday mornings, nine o'clock, Saturday mornings, Wednesday nights. One of the ladies who ran the wine department at Hackersan in London, she used to organize it every Wednesday. So, you know, just really intense. And this is going on for about four or five years. I could get myself up early Sunday morning to go taste wine at Hakkasan. I think, I think that wouldn't require. Well, when it's, you know, when it's sort of 12 pounds Sauvignon Blancs and, and, a, yeah. and, a, and a flight yeah. of neutral Northern white Italian wines at nine o'clock in the morning, that's a bit more dedication. Yeah. 
tougher to match with your dumplings at 9 a.m., I'm sure. Yeah, but it, yeah, it was, it, there was great people on it. And sadly, you know, a lot of people don't quite make the bath because it's quite brutal. You get timed out. I think it's, you get five goes at the tasting exam. And if you fail on the fifth time, I think you're timed out for 10 years. Wow. That, yeah, there's a bit of pressure on you on the fifth shot. Do you know if anybody's ever come back after a 10-year hiatus? I don't know that, actually. I don't know. That would be an amazing feat, an interesting yeah. one to ask next time you go. And there are three or four, aren't there? MSs and MWs. Gerard Basset, late Gerard Basset was one of them. So they've gone, they've brutalized themselves on both sides. I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> there are a few indeed. That's, that's insane. Yeah. And speaking of community and wine, what do you think? Community is obviously an important part of everybody's journey into wine and a reason why they stay. But how have you seen that changing in the last few years, both with technology, social media, but also so many bloggers, so many sources of information, you know, winemakers bombarded by YouTube video makers and documentarists. And it feels like what used to be kind of a small handful of places to go get wine knowledge has now exploded. And I don't want to say everybody's an expert, but you know, it, it's closer to that than, than the opposite, certainly, you know, 20 years ago. Well, there's a, there's a few things. I think one of them is you saw in a lot of businesses with the advent of COVID, technology came to the fore, Zoom and, and people organizing tastings. St. Marta did it in St. Marta Colray, you know, they'd send out the little sample bottles yeah. of so you can do a vertical tasting, you can do it on Zoom. So that changed things a little bit. That's how technology came in, got people more familiar with it. Back to the community side. Community is important. What's wine about? Wine's about sharing. It's about having fun. It's about enjoying the wine. In my view, not being too pompous about it, but enjoy, enjoying nice wines. And community is key. And, and modern technology can make the community wider and broader and people can reach out more. And that link may be between, we can really increase that link between the producer and the consumer because there's always been three or four stages. And for most consumers, they'll never meet the producer. They'll never see them. They might, there might be some tutor tasting once in a big hall with a hundred people or something. But I think producers are probably interested in what consumers really think and vice versa. And to have that, build that interaction, I think is interesting, helpful. And it's fun to get to know where your wine's from a little bit more about it. And the opportunity for learning and knowledge is expanding all the time. Absolutely. But it is filtering that knowledge, isn't it? It's filtering that material to what's you know, good quality and useful, a good resource. I think that's the challenge. And, and what fits you? Like, I remember for myself, I would obviously read, you know, a bunch of the reviews back in the day. And I really quickly filtered down and, and I, I became an avid reader of Clive Coates, not okay. because Clive is a this or that, or an MW has 16 titles, but, but more because I realized that his tastes matched very well with mine. Like often I would read huh. these description and I'd be like, I don't know what you're drinking, but that wasn't in whatever was in my glass when I had that wine. So, but with Clive, I was like huh. better than 60%. Like I got it. I may not have agreed with his ratings, but at least I could sort of use his palate to calibrate whether I would like something or, or not like something. And I think the proliferation of, you know, kind of both all different forms of media, but also different perspectives on wine. If you want to do the Rosé All Day podcast and, and that's your thing, fine, so be it. If that matches what wine means to you, like that proliferation on both sides has actually, I think, been good for the wine world. It 
maybe more confusing for some, but, but I think, you know, there's right. a lot more different palettes that you can connect or perspectives that you can connect with. And I think what's very important when you start out on your sort of wine journey, if I remember myself, you have quite fixed ideas about what you like. Okay. I like Bordeaux and you're very fixed on it. But then you realize through your journey that your palate changes, your interests change, it morphs. And so there's a whole world out there. There's so much to learn. And it's not just fixed about the one thing. You might be interested in you know, learning about something at one point in time, but it changes. It's not fixed. And it's worth remembering that. And that's what all this resource can provide. Absolutely. And I, that for me as well, as I've gone through my journey, especially Instagram has been a great way to connect with like-minded drinkers. And by seeing what else they're enjoying, it's also encouraged me to experiment a bit more because I went through the Bordeaux, red Bordeaux, white Burgundy, then discovering red Burgundy. And then I think like many sort of geeks now looking for the new thing, because at a certain point, you just want to be surprised and you want to discover new things. And for me, being an old fart, having yet another white Burgundy, I love it, but I'm fairly confident. I know fairly well what I'm going to get. Whereas, wow, that's a super interesting new Jura Chardonnay producer that's not reductive and super fresh. And I'm like, okay, well, with, I'll, go, I'll go check that out. With the advent, you know, the, the spreading of information, the technology in winemaking just improves a lot, the cleanliness in the wineries and discovery of all these new regions. And as people are pushing the boundaries regionally to slightly trying to find slightly cooler climates, whether it's going further down the coast of Chile or something, there are some great things to discover out there. And it's similar for me. I, I want to be wowed by that. Not too expensive bottle of wine. He's a great producer and the wine's fantastic, you know, maybe even new grape varieties, but things like Grunewald Liners from the Vacau, you know, with a bit of age on them, they're fantastic. And there's so many things out there that can just really wow you. And that's the joy of the journey. So I know, I know climate change has been a big one. Can I, I won't go directly into that first. I want to, I want to pick your brain on a controversial one because mm -hmm. a lot of younger consumers and a lot of places promoting great wines are associating themselves with natural wines, natural production. Mm. You see natural wine bars everywhere. You see exclusive or natural focused lists, et cetera. Can you talk about both sides of that equation? Because some people are like, ah, oh, mousy poop. That's not, you know, wine that's built to last. That'll, it's, it's a fad. Other people are like, fantastic. This is the old way. Respect for, you know, the purity of the crap. Of, I of would argue it's, for me, the reality is the middle ground. The wines still need to be well made. They need to have longevity. I sort of respect the movement. It depends how far down the natural wine movement you're talking about sort of sort of organic or is it you know s free of all so2 stylistically there are certain styles i think some are really good but i do win sometimes if i go somewhere and the whole wine list is natural wines i just think oh i hope there's something nice in here. i hope there's something good i'll be honest if you'd asked me that question like two three years ago i probably would have been snarkier in my answer than now mm. and i've found natural wines that i love I've yes. done natural wines that I absolutely do not. And the same thing with, with wines made any other way. I don't sell her a lot of natural wines. Well, some and of I, them, and I, you know. So, sorry, well, yeah, some of them may last because they're made in that oxidative style. So they're not necessarily going to oxidize. I'm, I'm not going to profess to be an expert on that field. 
But again, like you, there are some good ones out there. We just got a question, man, saying, how do we know which natural wines to trust? The answer is you don't. Even like producers that I love, the wine can vary wildly from vintage to vintage and, and then with age. But as always, I would say my advice would be, and I'd love to hear Philip's take on this, but I would say pick the producer before you pick the wine. And I've discovered great wines from producers, but I, I tend to focus more on producers that I know that I like and that I find trustworthy rather than saying, oh, that's a natural groomer. Yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah I'll maybe producer, maybe region, maybe great variety. If you know you like all those, and then maybe sort of reviews, reading good people like Jancis Robbins, you know, reading their reviews about them and sort of trying to explore from there. But it's a journey you'll have to go on yourself in a way. So what's the standout change for you? I mean, we, we can talk about younger consumers and their tastes. We can talk about prices exploding and, and wine becoming, you know, much harder to access, certainly fine wine and allocations and that whole game. We can talk about, I, and I do at some point want to talk about the sour grapes problem, but for you personally, both in your own wine journey, but also professionally as someone who advises clients. What's been the most kind of su fundamental substantive shift in the wine world in the last three to five years? I think, so those wines where supply is very limited is where you've seen the real explosion in price. So if we look at Bordeaux, you know, produces a lot of wine. They're big producers. So prices have risen, but they're not, they're not going to stratospheric beds of what they were. But obviously those, those Burgundies and some of the Piermont producers. That's where all the big changes and those wines in a, in a sense, getting out of the reach of drinking because everyone's got some sort of bar that they'll go up to, whether it's $30, $80, $500, whatever your bar is, or somewhere where you're sort of comfortable and a number of them are going away from that. And again, the allocation problem as they get skinnier and skinnier. And that's, that's changed who I think feels like they can even get into the wine world, right? Like. On the one hand, I hate the snobbery like you, and I hate that it's becoming a thing for only the truly, truly wealthy, because it's also part of the reason for, I mean, other than just disliking snobbery, part of the reason why that bugs me is that so many of the people in the wine world, in the trade, et cetera, et cetera, don't have that kind of money and have sort of no, it, it's not like working at the Rolls Royce dealer when you can go drive it when you want, even if you can't own it. it. It's really becoming like you can have a sip when you're pouring it for somebody else, which, which strikes, starts to become really well, just it, be, like, that doesn't sit well with me. You know? It's a bit this sort of gated community yes. thing to it, isn't it? And, and it's a shame, but I just, there's an inevitability about it. There's only so much of it. People desire it. The world gets wealthier. The stock markets go up. They have a wealth effect and money piles in. And I don't know if Mark Zuckerberg likes drinking DRC. He can afford to. You know, he can have it every night if he likes. And that's where it goes. You bathe in it. The, but the flip side of that, I think, and, and I think this is in a way part of what the natural wine movement was about, was kind of saying down with your snobbery, right? And the, the other part, obviously, of the snobbery is that people feel like there's this exclusivity on multiple dimensions. It's expensive. You have to know an incredible amount and all that nonsense around it versus I, I think a lot of what consumers coming into wine, they, they have different values. And I think it, that snobbery turns off 
a lot no, of for sure. But and they should be they should also be reassured by the fact that if you take one of the you know very fashionable expensive producers and you take a vertical ten vintages of his wine and you tasted them blind, I'm pretty sure that a number of those vintages will not be great and they will be nowhere near worth the price tag that they charge. And so that price quality ratio just doesn't really exist, but people buy it. And, you know, and the, that's, you know, the blind tasting element is where it really shows. And there are so many other good producers, especially if you go in the good years, who will beat those wines on a sort of purely blind quality sense. So you don't need to fall into that trap. And arguably, people who fall into it, well, that's sort of their issue. I mean, some yeah. of the wines are phenomenal, you know, the good years and the great producers, they're there for a reason. But I, I, and you know, I, one of the things I hate most is that a new winemaker will come in, start making amazing wines, a winery will gain reputation, and then all the old wines will explode in price as well. I'm yeah, like, yes. They had nothing to do with each other. What are you, you know? Like, no, no, there's no, there's an art, there's definitely there's something wrong in the sort of price and vintage and of, of top wines. There should be much more variation. But there isn't, because you're paying for a brand and a fashion, and it sort of changes the, the scope of it. But if you were building a cellar for someone who really likes wines, you would pick very selectively. Yeah, so let's, let's shift gears there, because that, that's something I definitely wanted to talk to you about. And it's linked to our previous point, which was about, about the prices and access. Let's talk about wine as an investment, because the prices have exploded. Allocations are tough. How do you, and, and by the way, you also have to enjoy this stuff at some point. So you can't just have the price tag as, as, as your model or the ROI as your model. I guess you could, but in theory, you should balance, be balancing those things out as I assume a lot of your clients do. How would you advise someone coming to you thinking about investment grade wine? Well, Balancing it, it, enjoyment and, and all the factors that we just talked about. It, you, you need to decide, well, the client needs to decide to stop. Why are they doing this? What, why are they investing in wine? Is it, and it can come from a few different angles. So it could be, I, I'm a pure capitalist. I just want to make money. Okay. That's all I'm interested in. It could be somebody who says, well, I really like these wines. They're a bit expensive, but if I can buy 10 cases, uh, keep it for five, 10 years, I can sell five or seven of them and I get the other three or four for free as they roll up in value. There's that side to come from it as well. So I think the important thing is decide why you're buying this wine or are you buying it because you think you'll only get it at the start on the allocation or whatever. You want to know where it's stored. You want to protect the provenance and know all about it. And you want to enjoy it yourself in 10 years time and have a bottle every year or two. So it depends what your starting point on that journey is. And therefore, depends what decisions you make. And the and wine were, it used to be a lot less complex because before there were a lot more sort of wine funds and investors. Yeah. Wine used to be sold. It used to naturally diminish in supply as it was drunk and it would generally appreciate quite smoothly. And so it made a lot of sense just to, you know, buy your 10 cases. That's how I started. I thought, if I buy 10 and I can sell five or six and I can get the other four much cheaper or for free, I can start building a nice cellar. And it, everything got really disjointed in the sort of things like 2007 to 2011. So much money came flooding in and it broke through all the relationships and it became a very different beast. And then you had the whole sort of, it wasn't a bubble, but the prices peaking in Bordeaux in 2011, it was very stratospheric and, and fell to the earth afterwards. So it's, it's about what you're trying to achieve. And then it's about setting out that strategy to achieve what you want to. So let's say I'm a crypto investor. I have money and, and I, I have an interest in wine, but I want to learn. 
And, and I'm more interested in the experiences and then thinking about wine as an asset fundamentally. What's kind of the minimum commitment I need to start thinking about in terms of number of cases I need to buy, how much I need to taste to really kind of figure out what I like and don't like and whether I, you know, should be visiting all this stuff or what, what would you, what would you advise someone like that? I think it comes back to an earlier point we were talking about how your taste will change as well. So I would argue don't dive in feet first and go all in and buy a hundred cases of, of, you know, Bollinger because you love yeah. it because you yeah. probably get bored of it after a while. So explore as much as you can, go to tastings, go to producer dinners, go to the wine merchants tasting. I don't know what goes, so much happens in the States, but in, in London every year, we have the Bordeaux tastings, you have the Burgundy tastings. Start to get to know, talk to people. And if there's something you like in a style, you know, buy a few cases and just keep building and exploring and, and going on that journey and you'll learn more. And, and as I say, as you start to learn what you like and also when you like to drink that wine, because I remember buying lots of 2005 Burgundies and they took years to come round. Mm. Years and years. And, it's, and ironically, you know, that's one of the best vintages for decades and with Burgundy's idea, with Bordeaux, you have these great vintages, but they take so long to come around sometimes. It's the lesser vintages that actually give you more drinking pleasure and they're half the price. So yeah, and turn out to be pretty damn good vintages anyway, because I remember they can last a shockingly long time. So they threw out loads of the 97s really cheap back I in was about about 97. <laughs> The ninety about in ninety nine, and I can't remember when it was, ninety eight, ninety nine, the merchants in London were throwing away these cases almost like two two hundred pounds a case, two fifty a case from Monroe's, Pichon Baron, et cetera. And they were great drinkers over the next 10, 15 years. And now yeah. some of them some of the wines were a little bit light and a bit thin, but some of them were really good. And it was yeah, I don't think you can accuse Monroe's of being light and thin and then he no. gives them this. So yeah, no, absolutely. But it's but that's, little that's pockets. I mean, but that's what's intimidating, right? Like you and I can say this because I don't even want to think about how many bottles between us we've had of Momo's, but somebody who's never heard of Momo's would be like, how the hell do I figure that out? And that's a little bit part of why we set this up, right? Like I Just want people to like, say, be a member of a, yeah, be a yeah, member I'm of a club and, and, and interact and ask those questions. And you'll find within the club membership, there'll be some people who know so much. There'll be some people, you know, sort of our age, old farts. They don't have any qualifications in wine or anything, but they love an area and they'll be super knowledgeable. They know so much more than I do about specific producers and all kinds of stuff. There's a wealth of information out there. And I think the club can help bring all that together. I think that's, that's a really important thing you just said, because I mean, you've got, you've got the title, you've got the experience, you do this for a living, but I think it's important for people to know that no matter who the hell you are, there's somebody who's deeper and oh. they are in, in any given place. And. I learn stuff, even when I go to my favorite producers that I've visited dozens of times, I, I will learn something new every time there. And I'm not even half of an expert, much less an MW. So I love, for me, that's the fascinating thing about community around wine, because you can go as deep as you want. And I've had people who know nothing about wine come with me to their first visit to a winery ever. And just walk away like I had no idea. And, and just the smiles on their faces, like I had no idea the richness of this world. And that's kind of, for me, that's the important thing. If I can unlock that feeling for a few dozen people, that's kind of the magic. 
I think you can. If people start with a certain degree of curiosity and are happy to be led on a journey, then it's, then it's there. And there's so much resource and so much resource the club can provide, you know, that people can have that experience. And then, you know, then the wheel starts turning. I, I want to, I know you've only got a few minutes. You, you have, you have to leave in about nine minutes. So one, I'll give a shout out to the crowd to say, pop your questions in because Philip doesn't have a lot of time. He's, he's got to jump 22, but I, I wanted to switch sides. I want to flip that around. We talked about the positive side of, of investment and the whole entry into the wine world. Let's talk a little bit about the authenticity problem, the sour grapes problem for a minute, because I think that's also scared a lot of people off. I love sour grapes. I think, I think it was brilliant and kind of gave a great eye-opening sort of look into the problem of counterfeiting and how the system actually is entirely through no one's fault is engineered to incentivize bringing amazing bottles to market and not to look scratch too hard at whether they're authentic or not. But then you and I have both, and I, I want to go back to your comments on blind, blind tasting. You and I have both been to tastings, I'm sure, where somebody's pulled a Romane Conti and we've been like, this is awful, this is terrible. And everybody, whoa, whoa, Romane Conti, that is amazing, changed my life. And, and, and drank stuff blind where amazing wines were in the lineup and we, you, we loved you, the dark horse too. You, so. you must be going to much better tastings than I do. <laughs> I can assure you. There's an interesting um, anecdote which I heard, which I think is true. So, you know, somebody buys some, and a really old burgundy from like maybe the 1930s or 40s. And it's still, the fruit's still good in it today. And think, wow, that's amazing. That's a really good wine. It's a structure. Well, it might be full of Algerian wine from the old French colonies. Because when they had those really thin vintages in Burgundy, they probably blended it. I don't know what's in there. Cab Sav or whatever they grew in Algeria. You know, and that's a big authenticity problem. But, you know, not one you can resolve easily. I mean, I think provenance is key. It's where you buy it from. And obviously, if, you know, if you buy on Primeur, you know, and, you, and, it, and it goes into your, like in the UK, we have the bonded storage accounts, which is a good system, which is a sort yeah. of semi sort of safe sort of setup and system. You know, there are holes in it. You could find holes in it quite easily. However, it's been in the bonded system. So if you've had ownership of the wine the whole time, then great. But if it's been from, if you could track it and it's, you know, you often saw these great collections wines go over to the States and about, mm. what was it five, eight years ago, they're all being sold in Hong Kong. Then they're going out to yeah. Asia. Then they're coming back. Do yeah. you want to buy that wine? Yeah. I, I love, I love seeing, I love seeing RC second time around the auction in Asia with Wildman labels on it. And you're just like, yeah, but really? I remember what the funniest I saw was a bottle of, it was years ago. It was before I was really into wine. It must've been in, in that 2000, it was I was into wine, but it was in 2003, fourth, and I saw a bottle of Hope Brion in a 7-Eleven in Anchor Watt. And I, was, I really remarked to the bottle, I didn't know at that stage, it had a different shape bottle. I thought, well, that must be fake because the bottle's a different shape. But the <laughs> bottle is a different shape. Yeah, that's, that's a funny one. I, 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 there were so many jokes going around right after Rudy Kurnawan was released mm. with like Romane Conti misspelled on the, and, and just these fantastic like, obviously fake fakes that, that were just laughable. Yeah. I mean, look, high, high prices will always attract fakes, won't they? Sadly, but it, it's that provenance thing and it, it's just provenance and knowing the history and the chain and where it's been. And hopefully, well, this is where blockchain could come in and I'm no expert on that, 
if the wine doesn't actually have to move and it can just stay in its warehouse in France or London or wherever and change ownership, but actually stay in the same, you know, cage, that solves a lot of problems. Yeah. And I think knowing to whom it was sold and how they would have cared for it, you know, over time, you will start to rep develop a reputation for reliability. You will start to develop a reputation. If you're a trader, someone who does exactly what you said, you know, buy 10 cases, keep five, sell five. If you're buying those from super reliable sources and people are super, it becomes like a rating system with the traceability attached to it, not just out of nowhere, like, hey, this is a five-star seller because I love, you know, I've always gotten good stuff from them. If I can go back to you and I know that it all came on premier, either one step or two degrees of separation, and you can provide proof of all that, that becomes, I think, very compelling for people who, who have concerns. And I think every does at these price tags. And what, and what you'll see is you'll just see different, you'll see the same wine trade at different prices, you know, it's, exactly. have, it, it's exactly. like a, it's like a, it's like a credit thing, isn't it really? Yes. Yeah, so, so, you absolutely. know, it's a differentiation in price if it's from, you know, it's like when they release later vintages from one of the Bordeaux chateaus, they always trade at a premium because it's come absolutely. from the chateau. As they should. It's been had the same. I think you've got, you, there's a couple of interesting. There's a couple of interesting questions come in here. Yeah, I'll take the NFT one and then you can think about the benefits for winemakers one while I'm answering. Like the question was, how can we prevent the risk that introducing NFTs to fine wines will create even more financial speculation? I think that's a great question. And I think that it will do exactly what Philip said. I don't think it will drive the entire market, but I think it will put high degree of trust, great provenance wines more clearly at the top of the pecking order and create a more clear rationale for why that value for provenance X should be whatever it is. The analogy I always use, which isn't a flattering one I know, is, is to the secondhand car market. Mileage is a calculus for value. Same car, same year, same model year. You give 10 different mileages or kilometerages, depending on where in the world you are, you will know exactly why it's worth that because the likelihood is that that amount of its life has been beaten out of it or used out of it. It's the same thing with the provenance. You'll know what a two-step away from Premier been moved twice wine versus a been moved once wine versus a hasn't been moved since release wine. You'll know exactly what those are worth to consumers. And I think it will be more about transparency than it will be about driving even more acceleration. I don't think more acceleration is really possible, but I'm sure somebody's going to quote me on that and I'll look like one of those idiots who said Bitcoin will never be anything $45,000 ago. So yeah. Philip, do you want to take? Yeah, so I'm just typing it, but I'll, I'll speak it because it'll be quicker. <laughs> I think benefits of winemakers, we talked on it earlier, is that closer link between consumer and producer. A lot of winemakers are really curious, even the top ones like DRC, they want to know who's drinking it and they don't necessarily want it always traded around everywhere. There's an element potentially of control and transparency. I think the improvement in the relationship between consumer and producer is good. The sort of feedback thing, what people are enjoying it with, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's helpful. I think the dad and they've got some ideas about how winemakers can come into the club and, you know, these sort of sales direct to c consumers. And that's really interesting. So I hope 
that it just it br- increases the conversation and brings the two parties closer. And at the end of the day, they're the two that matter, not necessarily all the layers in between of merchants, merchants, negotiations, and etc. Who all take have a who all take a little margin out of it, or not maybe not maybe little margin, but a margin, shall we say? I was actually really encouraged by your earlier statement in the conversation, Philip. That the way that the pandemic changed things was through showing that value of the direct relationships in a way that never would have happened through the, or would have taken years and years to happen through the natural evolution. And what we really want to do is to create the platform, which is by and for the winemakers and wine lovers. So really evolve it to where they see and get the value. And I'm, I'm super excited to explore it. We have a bunch of ideas and there's a bunch of stuff that we have gotten a lot of great affirmation from winemakers and wine lovers back that we're confident will work. But I'm sure there's 10 cool things that we'll figure out over the next few years as this thing scales, which we don't know, but are going to be Absolutely. The evolution. And people are still learning, aren't they, about those interactions and how they're best managed and, you know, the benefits to everyone. So. Absolutely. So I don't want to, I don't want to cut us short, but I do want to be respectful of your time. It's already one minute over your. uh, I'm just in a rush. I do apologize. No, no, no. It leaves plenty of subject matter for the future. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you again so much for the time, Philip. Yeah. Thank you to everyone for dialing in and, and suffering me for half an hour. It was good fun. Thanks. And we'll, we'll do this again soon. All right. Thanks, Bedad. All right. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Cheers.